want to find in your Bibles your place at Philippians chapter 1, we're going to read the first eight verses. Philippians chapter 1, you might have an electronic Bible, you might have a printed Bible, uh, but I invite you to find your place there. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Uh, you might be reading from the English Standard or from the New American Standard or from the New Living Translation or the New International Version. That's fine. You'll be able to follow along with me. If you don't have a Bible, the words that I'm going to read here will be on the screens as well. Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and, and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together as we begin this new series today. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will allow us to be transported by your spirit to a place where we can find calm, we can find peace, we can find rest, we can find joy for the journey. Lord, life is a journey. Uh, it's not a destination. Heaven is our destination. It's a journey we're passing through. And along this journey, Lord, we need your, your overwhelming sense of joy that well-being, that gladness that you work within our hearts. And I pray, God, that you will give that to us. As we study this book, as we talk about this letter written by Paul to the Philippian believers, I, I pray, Lord, that you will help us to see how that joy can be worked in each of our lives. In your name I pray, amen. We're starting today a new series of messages that I've entitled Joy for the Journey. And... We're going to be learning a lot about joy, but Philippians has a lot to say about a number of things. We're going to talk about anxiety. Any of you ever have anxiety? Uh, we're going to talk about prayer. Uh, we're going to talk about a walk that is worthy of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about our citizenship that's in heaven. We're going to talk about our partnership in missions. So there's a lot of different subjects that are discussed here in the book of Philippians that over the next 12 weeks or so that we are going to be looking at and we are going to be considering together. And so I hope that you'll join us. Each message stands on its own. That is, if you've not heard any other, other message, you could still come and you could be blessed by the message that you're hearing. But today we're laying a foundation so that we can build on that foundation. And if you're coming every week, you'll see how these messages uh, interlock with one another and how uh, they are dependent on one another as well. And so your being here for the very first message is absolutely uh, a wonderful thing because you're going to see the, the, the groundwork, you're going to see the framework, the, uh, the foundation laid as we begin in this series of messages. And we are talking about joy for the journey. Just so that you know, in the book of Philippians, uh, the word joy or rejoice or gladness is used 14 times. Uh, the verb form or the noun form is used uh, 14 times. You find it in every chapter of this letter written to the Philippian believers. And so clearly what the Apostle Paul was seeking to do was to communicate how we can have joy for the journey uh, as you look into this letter. You begin to understand how that joy is produced in our lives. As a matter of fact, somebody said about the book of Philippians that it is the most positive of all the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. As you know, some of the other letters that Paul wrote, he's dealing with specific problems. In Galatia, there were those who were trifling and uh, who were messing with the gospel message. And so he wrote some very, very strong words. Or he wrote to, to Corinth, to the Corinthians, and they were carnal. There was all kinds of carnality in that congregation, and he confronted it. 
And, and you read those kinds of things in some of the other epistles of Paul. But when you come to the book of Philippians, while he does deal with some issues that they aren't as dealt with in the same way that the other issues are dealt with in other letters that Paul wrote that are included in our Bible. So you're looking at what is probably the most positive of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to us and that we have today. Now, for us to begin, I have to do what I told you I want to do. I want to lay a foundation and to do that, I've got to set the scene. I've got to give you some background. I want you to, to be able to see the setting in which this book is written. So for the next few minutes, I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson. Don't, don't check out on me. I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson. It comes out of the book of Acts. Uh, you can go back and find it for yourself, beginning about chapter 16 of the book of Acts. But we don't have time to read all of that today, so I'm going to tell you the story. In the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul makes three missionary journeys. When he comes to the city of Philippi, he is on the second of those missionary journeys. It's about 51 AD, approximately, 51 AD. And there's a vision that's given to him that he needs to come over to Macedonia. Macedonia is Greece. Uh, if you'll think of Macedonia like we think of a state, and within the state, there are cities. And Philippi was one of the prominent, it was the prominent city of that Macedonian area. There was a major trade route that passed through there. So a lot of commerce and a lot of business was done as people were passing through Philippi. And so on this second missionary journey, the Apostle Paul stops about AD 51 in Philippi. He crosses the sea, uh, gets to the port city of Neapolis, then he goes inland just a little ways to this city of Philippi. And he was, he was summoned there by a vision that God gave to him that there were people in the city of Philippi who desperately needed the gospel. And so he arrives there. He will spend about three months in AD 51, he'll spend about three months in the city of Philippi evangelizing preaching the gospel, telling people about Jesus Christ, announcing his salvation, in, in inviting people to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You may remember some of the prominent converts on that first trip that he made to Philippi. One of them was a woman by the name of Lydia. Uh, Lydia was a businesswoman, a very prominent, very successful businesswoman. She had learned this trade in which she was involved, where she was born and where she grew up. But she had moved to Philippi to be in this trade city where the trade route is, and it had been very lucrative for her. She was a seller of purple. She dealt in fabric and in dyes. And it had been very lucrative for her. And the other person that you'll remember from this city specifically was the Philippian jailer. So let me tell you what happens. Paul comes in AD 51, going to spend about three months in Philippi. He's preaching the gospel. The first Sabbath day comes and there is no synagogue. Paul's traditional method was to go to a city and look for the synagogue and go reason with the Jews in the synagogue about Jesus. But there was no synagogue. That means that there weren't enough Jewish men living in Philippi to constitute organizing a synagogue. There had to be at least 10. So there weren't enough men to organize it. But the Apostle Paul had heard that there were a group of people that went down to the river, and at the river they would pray on the Sabbath day. And so Paul, having arrived in the city, goes down to this river, and he meets this group of people that go down here every Saturday in order to pray. One of them was a woman by the name of Lydia. Paul begins to preach the gospel. He begins to announce Jesus Christ, the good news about Jesus Christ. And here's what the Bible says in Acts chapter 16. The Lord opened the heart of Lydia, and Lydia became a believer in Jesus Christ. And Lydia probably introduced her friends and her family to Jesus as well. But we know that this prominent businesswoman was the first convert in the city of Philippi, in this Macedonian territory. Well, Paul will go on living there, as I said, for about three months of time. He'll go on living there, preaching the gospel. Ultimately, there'll be a riot that arises against Paul and against Silas. They want to silence them. They want them out of town because of something specific that happened. You can read about that in Acts 16. Something specific that happened that uh, was the work of God, the power of God. 
They take Paul and Silas under arrest. They beat them. They lay their backs bare. They put them in a prison, a dark, damp uh, prison. They put their feet in stocks. And the Bible says at midnight, having been beaten and having been arrested, beaten, and in prison, Paul and Silas start singing and worshiping God. Think about that for a moment. How many people do you hear singing and worshiping God in their jail cell? Just having been beaten, their backs are bleeding, their, their skin has been laid bare. I mean, they have to be sore, they have to be hurting. The stocks can't be comfortable, the surroundings of the jail cell cannot be easy. And yet here is Paul and Silas, and they are singing and praising God. Well, the other prisoners are listening. They can't believe it. They've never heard anybody do this before. I mean, they've heard others criticize and complain and grumble and gripe about their circumstances and about the situation they're in, but they've never had any other prisoner with which they've ever been in prison who's ever sung and praised God in the middle of the night after having been beaten. They can't believe what they're listening to, and they're just all fascinated. By the way, when the joy of the Lord takes hold of your heart, other people notice they become fascinated. They can't understand how you can have this joy in the midst of such circumstances. Well, an earthquake comes. God sends an earthquake. The jail cells come open. All of the prisoners could have escaped, but they don't. The, j- the jailer, thinking they've escaped, is going to take his life. And Paul says, don't. Don't do that. Don't do that. We're all here. And he goes in, and he finds all of them there, and he brings out Paul and Silas, and he asks what I think is the most important question any person can ask. The question was, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved. In other words, this Philippian jailer in essence was saying, I don't know what you've got, but whatever you've got, I want. There's something about you that's different. There is a joy in you that I don't possess. And I'm asking you, what must I do to be saved? Well, you know the story, if you've read through there. That Philippian jailer comes to faith in Jesus. He brings his family. They put their faith in Jesus. They're all baptized. And now what you have is a group of people in the city of Philippi that constitute a church, the beginning of a church. A church is birthed into existence during that three months of time. Eventually, Paul will leave. 51 AD, Paul leaves. And it'll be five more years before he comes back to that city. It'll be on his third missions journey. He's coming back and he's traveling through and he'll only be there for a short time. He won't be there as long as he was the first time. At least it doesn't appear as if he was there that long. It appears as if he was just there for maybe a few days to visit with those that uh, he had known from five years before. It's 56 AD now, and he wants to visit with them, see how they're doing, spend a little bit of time with them, you know, share a few more things about Jesus with them, uh, about who he is and about how Christ is changing them and changing their lives. And so it's, you know, he's there for a few days, and then he leaves. The next time you find the Apostle Paul, we find him at the end of the book of Acts, and he's in Rome. When he left, after that second visit to Philippi, he ultimately ends up in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he's taken under arrest, and he's carried all the way to Rome. He's going to be tried in Rome. It's a long journey. You can read about that journey. It's fascinating when you read about all the things that happened to Paul as he's making his way, being, he's not making his way, he's being forced to go from Jerusalem to Rome. He's under arrest. He gets to Rome, and when he gets to Rome, he is allowed to do something that's relatively common, but not always something that's permitted. He's allowed to have his own place, like house arrest. He has to pay the expenses. It may have been a barracks kind of situation. It may have been, uh, it wouldn't have been a house like we think of a house. You know, when I think of a house, I think of three bedrooms, I think of a kitchen, I think of a couple of bathrooms, you know, and maybe a garage. That's not what we're talking about. They had buildings sometimes that were just large buildings. Instead of multi-room apartments, they had one room. They had lots of these buildings with just room after room after room after room. And that may be where Paul was, but he was under house arrest. He wasn't in a prison while he was in Rome on this particular occasion. And he was paying his own expenses. He's having to pay the rent and whatever it cost him to live in that apartment. And he's going to be there for two years paying those expenses. And while he's there, the Apostle Paul, who used to travel to people, now God has people traveling to him. 
Where Paul used to go preach the gospel and disciple people, now people are coming to hear the gospel and he's discipling people. And so you have 51 AD, he's on the second missions trip, he comes to Philippi and a church is born. He comes back for a short time in 56 AD and uh, he's only there for a little while and he moves on. He gets arrested in Jerusalem, taken all the way over to Rome and he's gonna be there for two years. That's about 62 AD. So how many years from his first visit to this one? 10 or 11 years from his first visit to his imprisonment in Rome. While he's in Rome, he writes four letters that are called the prison epistles. One of those prison epistles is this book of Philippians. Now I want you to think about it for a moment. He talks here 14 times in this letter. Every chapter has a reference to joy. 14 times in these a little over 100 verses, he mentions joy. And where is he? He's in prison. Can you imagine? He's in prison. And yet here is a man, regardless of his circumstances, here is a man who's talking about and writing back to a church about joy. So let me tell you a little bit about what's happening while he's in Rome. He's under arrest. Uh, he can't go anywhere. People can come to him. He can entertain them, but he has to pay the expenses. All of his living expenses, he is responsible for, and he has to pay for. There is a man from Philippi that is sent by the Philippians. They hear about, Rome, about Paul being in prison in Rome, and so they decide to send a man by the name of Epaphroditus. Wouldn't you like that to be your first name? They decide to send a man named Epaphroditus to Rome. If my figures are right, that's over 1,400 miles in order to get from this Macedonian area all the way back over here to Rome. And when he arrives, his purpose for being there is to minister to Paul. He is supposed to be an encourager. He's supposed to be helping. He's supposed to be assisting Paul. And he's supposed to be there just to be an encouragement. But he's also come bearing a financial gift. And you can imagine how important that is. These financial gifts are absolutely necessary. Paul doesn't have a means at this point of, of making money, so he has to be supported as a missionary is supported, and that missionary support is helping to cover the expenses that he has while he's in uh, this house arrest in, in Rome. So Epaphroditus arrives. Epaphroditus is a great encouragement to him. He tells him about the Philippians. He encourages him about what's going on in Philippi. He brings this offering, and, and Paul is encouraged. But then Epaphroditus gets critically ill. We're not told what it was that was going on with Epaphroditus, but he becomes critically ill. Look over at chapter 2 for a moment. Chapter 2 and verse 24. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Yet I consider it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. But your messenger, in other words, they are the ones who sent Epaphroditus to Paul, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick almost to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I send him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice. There's our word, joy. You may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem. And so this man who had been sent by Philippi to minister to Paul and to bring this offering to Paul, this support to Paul, gets sick. He almost dies. God spares him. And Paul said, I'm going to send you back. I'm going to send you back because I know they're worried about you. They're concerned about you. And I want them to know what my situation is, and I want them to know you're okay. And he sends Epaphroditus to go back. And that's sort of the background of what's been going on. It's been 10 years since Paul was first in Philippi. One short visit in 56 AD, now under arrest, 61, 62 AD. And he's writing from this, uh, this imprisonment, this uh, house arrest. He's writing back and he's going to send it back and send back the messenger Epaphroditus, who had been sent from the Philippians to him. I'm going to send back this letter that we're going to study together. Now, when you think about this, these opening eight verses, 
give to us a glimpse into the heart and the mind of the Apostle Paul. And you need to be able to get a little bit of a glimpse of this, if you, if you will, of what was going on in Paul's heart and in his mind. First of all, we get a glimpse into his heartfelt emotions toward the Philippians. You notice in verse 3 what it says? I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. It's been 10 years. And he says, every time I think about you, you Philippians, I was there 10 years ago, back in AD 51, I was there with you. I was there when the first ones were saved. I was there when the church was birthed into existence. I was there while you were growing in Christ. I was there for those few months. And I want you to know that every single time I think about you, I thank God for you. He had an attitude of gratitude. And here was a man whose depth of emotion is pouring out of him at this moment. And he's saying, I can't think about you without being thankful for you. Have you ever had somebody in your life like that? Ever had a church that you were thankful for that way? People that every time they crossed your mind, every time you stopped to think about them, even for a moment, you couldn't help but have gratitude in your heart to arise. And and Paul is giving us a glimpse into his very heart, these heartfelt emotions. If you look down into verse 7, he says, just as it's right for me to think of this of you, because I have you in my heart. You hear what he says? Not only am I thanking God for you with gratitude, even 10 years later, thanking God for you, but I want you to know I carry you everywhere in my heart. And this particular word for heart is used over in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and here's what it means. It means I'd even be willing to die for you. That's how much I love you. That's how, that's how near you are to my heart. Some of you parents know what I'm talking about. You'd be willing to die for your children, wouldn't you? I've seen parents when their children were sick that would gladly have changed places with their children if they could. And that's what Paul's saying. That's the depth of emotion that he feels. That's his heartfelt emotion. I am filled with gratitude when I think about you. I have you in my heart, not just in my chains and in the defense of the gospel. I have you in my heart. You are so dear to me. Then he gets down in verse 8 and he continues. He says, God's my witness how how greatly I long for you all. By the way, he says you all several times, so Paul's got to be a southerner. Got to be from the south, right? So he says, how greatly I long for you all. Now listen, with the affection of Jesus Christ. It's an interesting Greek word that's translated affection. If you carry the old King James Version, it's called the bowels of Jesus Christ. It literally refers to the intestines, to the digestive tract. Why? Because he is so moved about these people. He he loves these people so dearly. He is so filled with gratitude about these people that it goes to the very core of his being. It touches him at the deepest place in his very being. That's how much Paul loved the Philippians, and I believe the Philippians loved Paul. And so you get a little glimpse of this heartfelt emotion that Paul felt toward the Philippians. But you also get a glimpse of his earnest prayers. You notice in verse verse 4, it says, Always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. Both of those words, prayer and request, are translated from the same Greek word. One lexicon says this kind of prayer is that which is asked with urgency based on presumed need. That which is asked with urgency based on presumed need. Paul says, not only when I pray, do I thank God for you and feel the nearness in my heart, the love that I have for you, but every time I pray, I beg God to meet your needs. I beg God to take care of all of those things. He's heard from Epaphroditus over those 10 years. He may have heard from other messengers who came to him that passed along to him information out of the city of Philippi, what was going on in the city of Philippi. But whenever he's praying, he's he's praying with urgency, God, these people are going through some persecution. Lord, strengthen them. Encourage their hearts. Lord, surround them with your love. Can you hear him praying? He's thinking about some of them that may be doing without uh, some of the necessities of life. Lord, you've promised to meet all of their needs according to your riches and glory. And God, I believe you're going to take care of these things in their lives. And he's urgently praying for the needs. Do you have somebody you urgently pray for? 
Do you urgently pray for your children, your grandchildren? Do you urgently pray for your spouse, for our church? Do you urgently pray for people to be saved, for people to grow in their faith? Paul was praying and making requests on their behalf. And you get a, you get a glimpse into Paul's heartfelt emotions and into his earnest prayers, but you also get a glimpse into Paul's faithful partners. You notice verse five, he says, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Your fellowship. It's the Greek word koinonia. I stopped and get my mind going here. The word koinonia. You find this word several times, nine times in this epistle. Sometimes he adds a prefix to it so it becomes a compound word to strengthen the word. But it's nevertheless at the core, this word koinonia. And here he says, not only do you see my heartfelt emotions and my earnest prayers, but I want you to see my faithful partners. They are with me in the fellowship of the gospel. Now, Baptist people, when we think of fellowship, what do we think of? <laughs> that didn't take long to get an answer. We think there's got to be some kind of a, a potluck dinner going on somewhere. You can't fellowship without food. That's what a lot of us believe. But this word koinonia, translated here as fellowship, literally means partnership. It's the reason why with our own missionaries. What do we say about our missionaries? We are partnering with our missionaries. We are entering into a partnership with our missionaries. And the Philippian people had partnered with the Apostle Paul. It wasn't about food. It was, if you will, and I hate to put it in these terms, but you'll grasp it if I say it this way, a business agreement, a business partnership. And what was it they were trying to accomplish? The spread of the gospel. That they could support this missionary, this apostle of Jesus Christ, carrying the message far and wide. And they partnered with him. They partnered with him in their own prayers, in, in their own encouragement. They partnered with him financially. Sending to him, as they did through Epaphroditus, offerings to him to assist him. You notice when he says, this fellowship in the gospel is from the first day. That's been 10 years ago. From 10 years ago, when I first came there. Through that five-year period later, when I was there for a short time, to 61, 62 AD, 10 years later, you're still in business with me. You're still joining your heart to mine. You're still partnering with me in the gospel. There is no greater partnership. There is no greater fellowship than the fellowship of the gospel. We might see a lot of things differently, but what we do is we come together and we unite ourselves around the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Amen? That's what we do. We come together like business partners to commit ourselves to this task that must be accomplished. And the Apostle Paul makes mentions of, of these faithful partners. Look back at chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4. Notice verse 14. Philippians chapter 4, verse 14. Paul says, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared. That's the same word, koinonia, in my distress. You've partnered in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia 10 years ago when I left you, no church partnered with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. In as, or indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma. Wait a minute. God didn't, I mean, Epaphroditus didn't deliver some cologne to him. He's talking about this financial gift. He says it's a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And so in these very opening verses, you know something important. You know how Paul feels toward the Philippians. You know that Paul is praying all the time on behalf of the Philippians. And you know that the Philippians are partners with him in this mission venture. 
They have joined him in giving once and again from the very beginning up until this day, 10 years later, to help him accomplish what God had given him to accomplish. But you also get a glimpse into his settled confidence. You notice in verse six, he goes on, he says, being confident. Here's confidence of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now let's just stop there for a moment. What is the good work? It is the partnership in the gospel. That's what he just told you in verse five. We often read verse six and we think about sanctification. Now don't let the word scare you. It's a theological term. I understand. I'm gonna explain it to you. Just don't check out on me. Salvation is what happens to you the moment you receive Christ as your savior. You're born into the family of God. You're saved. Salvation. Sanctification means to be set apart. And God is ever at work from the moment you're saved. God is ever at work in your life. And he's changing you and he's working in you. And he's setting you apart to himself. Making you more like himself and less like the world in which we live. And we usually read that verse in light of sanctification. In essence, he would be saying, I believe that God started this work in your life of setting you apart, and he's going to finish that work of sanctification until you see Jesus Christ. And that is true. It is true that God does that, but that's not what he's talking about here. The Apostle Paul is confident. He is confident that this good work of their partnership in the gospel will be completed. Why? Because God started it. God's the one who sustains it, and God's the one that'll complete it. And when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, we'll see the outcome of it. We'll see the rewards of it. Because we've been faithful partners. By the way, let me talk about missions again for just a moment. We have some 90 missionaries and mission projects that we support, we partner with. We may never see the outcome of those, missions work, of those mission works on this side of eternity. But on the other side, when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, we will know what God has done. And that's what Paul is saying. You Philippians can't all be here to see what all God's been doing. You hadn't been able to travel with me to go all along the way. But I can tell you this, what God started and what God sustains, God's going to complete. And you're going to see the outcome of it. In that day when you see Jesus Christ face to face. And so he had a settled confidence. He had a settled confidence that this church wasn't going to walk away from him. You know, one of the great fears of a missionary is that you get partners to help you get to the mission field and then they drop you. Paul wasn't afraid that they were going to drop him. He had a confidence that God started it, God sustained it, and God would complete it. But then you also see, as you get a glimpse into Paul, his heartfelt emotions, his earnest prayers, his faithful partners, his settled confidence, but then you see his divine favor. That God had given him grace. You notice at the end of verse 7, he says, Inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers. That's the same word as fellowship. Koinonia. You are partakers with me of what? Grace. Grace is God's divine favor. And Paul says that God has given me his favor, but he's given it to you as well, Philippians. I mean, after all, they shared a common salvation, didn't they? And how are you saved? For by grace are you saved through faith, not, not, of yourself, lest, not of yourself, lest any man should boast. They had a common salvation. They had a common mission. They were as committed as Paul was to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. They had a common suffering. As Paul suffered along the way, the Philippians were going through some suffering in their own lives. And then they had a common hope that they would see Jesus Christ and would be rewarded when they saw him face to face. And so you get this glimpse into the Apostle Paul and you begin to see how deeply he loved these Philippian believers and how he prayed on their behalf and how faithful they had been to him and how thankful he was for their help and their encouragement and their financial support. And he was confident that they weren't gonna walk away from him because they had all come into this same grace and they were experiencing together this divine favor from God. Now, are you with me? 
Have I lost you? Some of you, I can just look at your eyes. I'm not sure you're there. <laughs> the Apostle Paul writes this letter back. 61, 62 AD, writes this letter back to the Philippians. And here's what's incredible. And here's where we can make it practical. Where is Paul writing this letter from? He is writing this letter from what is, in essence, a jail cell. It's, uh, it's a house arrest. He can't leave. He can't go out and practice his trade as a tent maker. He can't go out and preach the gospel in the streets like he normally would. He's bound to the four walls of this place. He's chained to a Roman soldier 24-7. He mentions his chains in verse 7. He mentions them again in verse 13 and 14. He's chained to a Roman soldier 24-7. And while Paul can't go out and preach, God's bringing people in, but Paul's having to pay for all of this. He's having to support himself even though uh, he's under Roman arrest. He's having to pay for himself to be able to stay at this place, chained to this soldier. And yet he writes a letter where 14 times he uses the word for joy. I mean, when you read through the eight verses that we read here a few moments ago, Paul speaks of joy, thanksgiving, gratitude, confidence, and deep affection. Did you get that? He speaks of joy, thanksgiving, gratitude, confidence, and deep affection. And yet Paul is chained to a Roman guard 24-7. Imagine that. You thought marriage was bad? And I'm kidding. Chained to a Roman guard 24-7. He's in a house, a room he's having to pay for, and he can't leave it. That's his prison. And by the way, he has either already been before the tribunal or he is preparing to go before the tribunal. Why? How do you know that? Because he says in the defense and confirmation of the gospel in verse 7. The defense is the apologetics. It's the argument. The confirmation is the validation. In other words, like a lawyer, he's prepared his case. He's ready to go before the tribunal and to make his case. He may have already been there for at least you know, a preliminary hearing of some kind. He's already made his case. He's got all of that stress and that pressure as well. And yet, with gratitude and with joy and with thanksgiving and with confidence and with deep affection, he writes back a letter that's the most positive of all the letters the Apostle Paul writes. And why should we be so surprised? I mean, 10 years before, beaten, his feet in stocks, in a prison, a dark, damp, dingy prison, he and Silas are singing and praising God. Why should we be surprised? Because the Apostle Paul knew something that every one of us needs to know. The Apostle Paul knew about joy. Now please, when I talk about joy, I'm not talking about giddiness. I'm not talking about laughing at somebody's jokes or some comedian. I'm talking about something that God works deep within your heart that is there regardless of what your circumstances are. Paul is in not good circumstances. They're better than being in a Roman prison itself, but they're still under arrest. And if there was ever a man who had a right to complain and to grumble and to gripe and say, look, Philippians, I appreciate you sending Epaphroditus, but it wasn't enough. Do you understand how much I'm paying every month? Do you understand how many expenses I have? All these people come to visit me. You know what they want when they get here? They want food. And I got to feed all these people. You got to do something more than what you're doing. He didn't do any of that. In a, in a room, four walls, you can't go out of, chained to a Roman guard. Paul writes the most positive letter of all the letters that he wrote, and he fills it repeatedly with the idea of joy. Why? Because joy is not related to our circumstances. Joy is the work of God that he does within our hearts. And it's something that supersedes our circumstances. 
Joy is an overwhelming sense of gladness or well-being that's rooted in God, in his promises, and in eternal realities. Let me say it again. Joy is an overwhelming sense of gladness or well-being that's rooted in God, his promises, and eternal realities. In other words, Paul wasn't looking just at the temporal circumstances that were around him. If that's what he had looked at, he would have been depressed. But he knew there was a God in heaven who was sovereign over everything he was experiencing. He was holding on to the promises that God had given to him in his word. And he was looking forward to the eternal realities that would be his in the future. That's what the Apostle Paul means when he says, for to me to live is... Wow. For to me to live is, it's Christ, and to die is, that's eternal realities. And looking at God and looking at his promises and looking at these eternal realities, God worked a joy in his heart. So if you beat his back, you put him in stocks, you threw him in the darkest part of the prison in the middle of the night, he was overwhelmed with a sense of well-being He was overwhelmed with a sense of this well-being and this sense of gladness in his heart so that he could sing praises to God. Or if it's 10 years later and he's boxed in a room, chained to a guard, he has that same sense of joy deep within him that's regardless of his circumstances because it's something that God works when we look at him we hold on to his promise, promises and we look forward to the eternal realities. Do you realize why joy so often is absent? We spend our whole lives looking to replace joy with laughter. To replace joy with emotionalism. And we never know the real meaning of joy. Let me see if I can illustrate what I'm talking to you about. In the recent weeks, I... I visited a man who has stage four cancer. He just got the message just a short time before I arrived to visit with him. He only has a few months to live. And I was sitting there talking to him and asking him questions about his cancer and where it is and how they found it and you know, about the tests that they've done for it and are there any treatments and you know, going through the standard questions that you know, people like myself who are not in the medical field ask just to try to understand what's going on. When he got through and he explained to me what was happening and I realized that he, he isn't going to escape where he is apart from a divine miracle, which God could do, apart from a divine miracle, he's going to die. So I looked at him and I said, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? That was my question. And I'll never forget his response. Laying on his bed knowing that what faced him was death. He said, I don't know how to explain how I feel, but I'm okay. And that I'm okay wasn't a, you know, whatever. It was, I have something inside of me that I don't know where it's coming from, but I know it's there and I'm not afraid and I'm not worried and it's okay. And he had a little smile on his face. It wasn't one of those where you had to, you know, you had to force your face to smile. He had a smile on his face. And there was absolutely no anxiety or fear, but peace and joy. Wouldn't you like to have that kind of joy? By the way, God gives you that kind of joy when you need it. I mean, through looking at him and holding on to his promises and the eternal realities that we know are beyond this world, rooted in those things is this overwhelming sense of well-being and gladness that God puts within our heart so that Paul can say, hey, for me to live is Christ and hey, to die is gain. This ain't a bad deal. If I live here, I live for Jesus. If I die, I go be with Jesus. It's all right. And there is that kind of joy. You'll never get that out of a ball game. You'll never get that out of a dance routine. You'll never get that out of American Idol or The Voice. 
You might get happiness and you might get laughter and you might get some fun, but I'm not talking about any of those things. I'm talking about something that's worked by God deep within your soul. It's an overwhelming sense of well-being and gladness that's rooted in God and in his promises and in eternal realities that says no matter what my circumstances, if I'm chained to a Roman guard in a room that I can't leave for two years, knowing that I gotta go before the tribunal and make a defense and a confirmation of the gospel, knowing that people are gonna come in and visit me and leave and come in and leave. You realize that when you're in a place where you can't leave and people leave, that's some of the hardest times there are. When you're stuck and they walk away, you wish you could go with them and you can't. And yet Paul, in the midst of those circumstances, said, you know what? I've got a joy that transcends my circumstances. Don't you want that kind of joy? Don't you want that to be worked in your heart? That's not something you work up. That's not an emotion that that you manipulate into occurring. That's something that God does for the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. It is a fruit that God works within us. And God puts that in us as we look at him, at his promises, and at the eternal realities. And suddenly, there's a calm. There's there's a calm that comes over us. And we say, you know, it's okay. It's, It's okay. If I live, it's Christ. If I die, it's gain. But you know what? I might not have a big smile on my face and I might not skip across the floor and I might not laugh out loud, but there's something overwhelming within me that speaks of gladness and well-being that no circumstance can take away from me. I know that some of you are going through difficult times and God wants to work that kind of joy in your hearts. And we're going to learn about that through the course of this study in, in the book of Philippians. So I hope you'll keep coming back and you'll keep being a part of this discussion. But I, I want to finish with a little story. It's an allegory or may, maybe it's a fable. And I want you to understand that whatever your circumstances are right now, they don't define you. That if you look at God, rooted in God, rooted in his promises, rooted in eternal realities, God is at work and you can rest in him and the joy can come deep within you that no circumstance can ever take from you. It's a little story that it's about an American couple that went to Europe to celebrate their 25th wedding anniversary. And when they arrived in Sussex, they went into a little china shop. They were connoisseurs of China and, you know, pottery and antiques of that nature. And they went in together and they noticed a little teacup on the top shelf. They thought it was unusually pretty. So they asked if they could have it taken down and they could look at it up close. And this is where the fable begins. They took it in their hands and the teacup spoke to them. And this is what it said. You don't understand I haven't always been a teacup. There was a time when I was red and I was clay. My master took me and he rolled me and he patted me over and over again. I yelled out, let me alone. But he only smiled and said, not yet. And then I was placed on a spinning wheel. Suddenly I was spun around and around. Stop it, I'm getting dizzy, I said. The master only nodded and said, not yet. Then he put me in an oven. I'd never felt such heat. I wondered why he he wanted to burn me. I yelled and I knocked on the door. I could see him through the opening and I could read his lips. And he nodded his head and he said, not yet. Finally, the door did open and he put me on a shelf where I began to cool. That's better, I said. And then suddenly he grabbed me and he brushed me and he began to paint me all over. I thought I would suffocate. I thought I'd gag. The fumes were horrible. And he just smiled and said, not yet. 
And then suddenly he put me back into an oven, not the first one, but one twice as hot. I knew I was going to suffocate, and I begged and I screamed and I yelled all the time I could see him through the opening, smiling and nodding his head. Not yet. Not yet. And then I knew that there was no hope. I knew that I wouldn't make it. I was just ready to give up when the door opened and he took me out and he put me on a shelf. Then an hour later, he came back and he handed me a mirror and he said, look at yourself. And I did. And I said, that can't be me. I'm beautiful. I want you to remember, he said, I know that it hurt to be rolled and to be padded, but if I would have left you, you would have dried out. And I know that it made you dizzy to spin around and around on a spinning wheel. But if I had stopped, you would have crumbled. And I know that it hurt and it was hot and disagreeable in the oven. But if I hadn't put you there, there would have, you would have cracked. And I know that the flames were oh so bad when I brushed you. The fumes were oh so bad when I brushed you and when I painted you all over. But you see, if I hadn't done that, you wouldn't have hardened and there would be no color in your life. If I hadn't put you in that second oven, you wouldn't have survived for very long. But now, you're a finished product. You are what I had in mind when I first began with you. Do you get the point? Joy is an overwhelming sense of well-being and gladness that is rooted in God Rooted in his promises and rooted in eternal realities. It's something that God works within your heart, especially in those moments when you desperately need it. That God works within your heart that your circumstance can never take away from you. Because you know that while it's hot and uncomfortable and miserable at this moment, that God is doing something for his glory and for my good. <laughs>